This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. If you've followed my work even a little bit, you know I'm not shy about criticizing the media. I've never been all that interested in attacking specific journalists, though there are plenty of bad ones out there. I'm much more concerned about the business model of the press and the incentive structures that guide and constrain our work. For the most part, journalists are doing the best they can. And for all kinds of reasons, it's getting harder and harder to do that. In the last five or six years, lots of questions have emerged about the role of the press. How should we treat bad faith actors in politics? How do we cover threats to democracy in a super polarized climate? How do we engage a public that has lost trust in what we do? There aren't easy answers to these questions, but the questions aren't going away. If anything, they're only getting more urgent. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is James Fallows. He's a former speechwriter for Jimmy Carter, a longtime reporter for The Atlantic, and the author of many books, most notably his 1996 book, Breaking the News, and more recently, Our Towns. Between his books and his current newsletter, also called Breaking the News, James has been writing about the state of journalism for decades. And for my money, he's one of the sharpest observers of the political press in this country. James was exploring the profound failures of the press and the troubling mistrust of the public 25 years ago. And while those criticisms still resonate, that period seems almost quaint compared to what's going on today. It almost seems like a lost Eden. There were some things that were very much the same. And what I was writing about was the way in which the professional press, quote unquote, sort of shrank everything down to politics and that they used a lot of their and misused their opportunities to 
ask about events affecting the whole public, to mainly ask about what was the uh, prospect for the next political race or who was up and down in the White House, et cetera. But that was in an era when network news, the three large broadcast networks, still had a very substantial throw weight and presence in people's minds. The internet, for all intents and purposes, did not exist. Fox News was just about to have its first broadcast. And so I think the arguments I was making are depressingly relevant to the media of 2022, 2023, which is you know, more than a quarter century after I was writing these things. And the technology has in most ways made the problems more challenging for both the public and for people in public life and for people in the media to deal with. Isn't that sort of interesting in how the internet has very dramatically changed the landscape in all kinds of ways? But Curiously, and I guess depressingly, it didn't really change the core incentives driving the press. If anything, it just forced the press to sort of double down on all the worst things they were doing already because the competition for clicks and attention just intensified. So it kind of brought out the worst impulses and amplified them. And there are ways in which, as in often the case through human history, a new technology sort of accentuates and clarifies what was there before. Mm. There are some technologies that profoundly change everything that had been there before, whether it's the steam-powered uh, coal-fueled engine over several centuries ago or the automobile or whatever. They really transformed. They were differences of degree that became differences of kind. I think the Internet is more a very sharp difference of degree, that there always had been a sort of balance between large-scale and very highly focused audiences for media. And the larger scale an audience, then by definition, the broader a mentality and a sensibility that news media had to deal with. And so, for example, I grew up in the dreaded boomer era in Southern California in a town called Redlands, which is near San Bernardino. And in those days, you simply could not get national publications like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Physically, they did not exist. Or if they did, you would get them three or four days later by mail. And so the Los Angeles Times and the San Bernardino Sun and my own hometown Redlands Daily Facts, for which I was a paper boy and a correspondent and all the rest, they had to sort of include their whole audience. And the network broadcast had to do that too. You had to go across political lines and gender lines and age lines in, in addressing everybody. But even then, there were some targeted niche media outlets. So I think AM radio was paving the way. And in the Southern California of my youth, there was a guy named Joe Pine, who was sort of the Rush Limbaugh before his era, the Steve Bannon before his time, or the Trump before his time. He was not a political candidate, but he was somebody who, to a specific audience, was mainly preaching resentment and incitement. So I think through our history, there's always been the balance between the breadth and the focus. And I think the technology of the internet has especially intensified the sort of very narrow range focus that's possible and the things that people can believe separate from other people. What do you think is the biggest impact of the digital revolution on mainstream political media? That's a fascinating question again. I think the development that probably requires most repair is the elimination of the business model of local publications. 
that until 15 or 20 years ago, it was still the case that local newspapers were a pretty good business because of classified ads and real estate ads and things, local news. And the fact that just that business is not a viable business at all anymore. It is like the horse buggy business or something because of the business effect of the Internet, starting with Craigslist long ago and then getting sports news and all the rest. So the most consequential business effect with civic ramifications, I think, is the impact on local news. The biggest impact on the major media, I think, has probably been – the separation of really expert and substantive sites that are available on any subject you really care about, whether it is aviation, of which I'm a fan, or whether it's biology of some kind, or or whether it's the history of Mesopotamia. There are expert sites that can tell you all about those things. And in a way, they have made the dominant international news sites the New York Times, the BBC, the Washington Post to a lesser degree, etc. They have become, I think, more about politics than they used to be. They become more sort of the leading figures on the New York Times in particular are about political news, which is probably the least useful news. And while the Times has a wealth of other fabulous material, maybe the effect on the national media has been to make them more political. And I think we should be clear what you mean by that. You know, when you talk about how the press has become more obsessed with politics over everything else, what do you really mean there? Are you talking about sort of the gamification of politics? Yes. And thank you for asking me to clarify that. So I had a a sort of set piece in my book, Breaking the News, again, which came out. I was writing this during Bill Clinton's first term. That is, it was that long ago, and it was just after Newt Gingrich had taken Republican control of the House as the first Republican speaker in many decades. I had a long segment which was comparing the questions at a White House press conference with the people who are highly trained in the reportage and are supposed to be the representatives of the public. The questions they asked the White House press officials and also the president at a press conference were the questions that a sitting president or presidential aspirants got when they were on the road and when they talked to actual people. And the questions from the White House reporters were, how will the latest move in Libya affect your standing in the polls? And what do you think the new Republican majority is going to do? How will they criticize you? And are you worried about the, after these midterms, about being challenged in the primaries? It was all the questions that would be relevant if you were running a political campaign yourself. The questions from actual people were, My mother is having trouble paying for her insulin. What are the prospects for dealing with that? I am an immigrant, and I'm wondering about how my status will affect applying for community college. My town is having trouble keeping its manufacturing business within our borders. What's the role the federal government can play in those issues? And it's a consistent thing, which we've seen again and again, even recently, when people— and citizens want to be involved with their government. They want to know what their government is doing either for or to them about the substance of their life. They're not political experts. And the people who run political coverage, they're in the role essentially of sports talk radio. It's sports talk radio 
about public life, which is interesting to them, and I mean us, but is not interesting to us in the national sense. So my wife, Deb Fallows, who's a PhD in linguistics and a author and a wonderful person in every way, she was once a student back at the dawn of time of Noam Chomsky who was one of the pioneers of the linguistics business. And Noam Chomsky was known, of course, as a inventor of modern linguistics, then as a person of sort of controversial world politics views. But it also turns out that Noam Chomsky is a fan of sports talk radio, and he listens to it a lot. And one of his theories is if you listen to sports talk radio, most of the time you realize that ordinary people actually are quite sophisticated in their thought. Some of the people who call in are idiots, but some of them can say, oh, well, look at the way they had the linebacker move, and Belichick is doing this, and Harbaugh is doing that, and they can think in 10 dimensions, which you never hear when normal people are interviewed about public life because the political reporters mainly say, what are you angry about? Do you like Obama or do you hate Obama? Do you like Trump or do you hate Trump? That is reducing people to one dimension. And Noam Chomsky was saying, if we thought people were as smart as most of them reveal themselves to be on sports talk radio, we'd do a better job of portraying our nation. That's so interesting. I I noticed a while back, you know, you can turn on ESPN or, or something like this and they'll have one of these, you know, first take style debate programs where they get someone on both sides and they have them agree beforehand to take up some ridiculous or extreme position and then duke it out in front of the cameras. Stephen A., do you think Cam at this point should regret even signing with the Patriots? I think so. When I say regret, it's only because of the fact that there's so many weapons that he doesn't have available to him at his disposal in the passing game. Running game's different. They have nothing. This is why Cam Newton should not regret signing with the Patriots. Do you understand It is fundamentally, categorically, almost indistinguishable from a lot of politics coverage. I mean, the mechanics of it are the same. It's just on one side, they're talking about who's winning the NL East or, you know, the playoff picture. And on the other side, they're talking about Republican primaries or whatever the case may be. But it's the same approach, the same model. And it has this almost perverse effect of trivializing political life while at the same time kind of intensifying it in the sense that it sort of leans into the kind of tribal sport of it all. You know what I mean? Oh, exactly. And I I was thinking of the word tribal just as you were saying it, because the worst part of politics is when it becomes purely tribal. And we accept that in sports and Red Sox and Yankees and Cal and Stanford and, you know, you name your other rivalry. That's part of what gives sports both its appeal and its horror, if you're thinking of English soccer mobs. But political life shouldn't become that way because it's the only way we can address the national challenges we have to deal with. And the essence of tribalism is that you want the other side to lose, and you want them to lose almost as much as you want your side to win. And when that becomes the animating feature of public life, we've got problems. At least with a lot of sports coverage, the biases are fairly clear. You know, people are just fans of what they're fans of. And It's all kind of above the table. Something you've written about, something I've written a lot about in terms of the sort of mainstream legacy political media is this tendency to kind of the view from nowhere, right? Or the both sidesism. Hell, you were writing about this back in the 90s and the problem is only worse now, right? Oh, it it is so much worse now 
that about three or four months ago, I did a post on my Substack site saying I've given up. <laughs> and there's a wonderful headline from The Onion back in its dawn, almost 20 years ago, I think. The banner headline was Amish give up. And the subhead was, this is bullshit, elders say. <laughs> it was about how the Amish said, you know, we need some electricity, we need some cars, et cetera. Love it. I had a sort of Amish give up moment with uh, both sidesism, in particular with the New York Times, but with national press in general, where I was saying a couple of months ago, I just can't stand to point it out any- anymore, and we'll have to build something new. And yet, even so, even within the 24 hours before you and I are speaking, Sean, just before Thanksgiving of 2022, one of the lead correspondents, formerly of the New York Times, now of the Washington Post, was putting out some tweet saying, well, on the one hand, you know, it's so fascinating to see how both Trump and Biden, they both lie. You know, Trump lied about some things, but Biden has been too cute by half in describing what the press coverage for his granddaughter's wedding was going to be. I thought... Ah, you know, there is never going to be a pure moment. And this tweet was by somebody at the Washington Post. It was sort of retweeted and ramped up by somebody from the AP and somebody from the New York Times. Yeah. And I thought, you know, Amish give up. Look, the reporter's name is Ashley Parker. And I hate Twitter. I am trying to get off Twitter. And I really hate the sort of pylon phenomenon that happens when someone says something like that. But I I couldn't help myself but tweeting here. And I swear to God, if you asked a super intelligent AI to engineer the platonic ideal of both sides journalism, it couldn't do better than that, you know? And I just want to say why I think that is. On the surface, what Ashley Parker said isn't exactly wrong, right? I mean, White Houses, politicians lie or deceive or mislead or whatever. I mean, that's politics. But it's the moral equivalence. It's the inability to make any kind of normative distinction between lying about, say, kids in cages or stealing nuclear documents or whatever. And in this case, the Biden lie, as you're saying, is I guess apparently the White House lied about whether Biden's granddaughter's wedding was going to be private. And to hold those things up as equivalent phenomena is just, I mean, come on. I'm just, I'm so tired of this. And I guess. I should say, it's not even clear they lied. I mean, it may actually have been a private thing and they just decided to do a spread for Vogue magazine or whatever. Like, I don't know and I don't care. I just don't give a damn and no one else should either. You know, this kind of access journalism or both sides journalism, whatever, is so bad and lazy for all kinds of reasons. But I'm curious what you think about this. I don't think it was really all that dangerous or consequential when liberal democracy was more or less sort of on stable ground in the country, it was a luxury of stability. But that's not the case anymore, I don't think. And the media is still operating as though it is. And here we are. Yes, I agree. And one of the the modes of thought I try to apply here, partly because I, I have now personally lived through so much of U.S. history myself, is how is this going to look later on. 
Yeah. If you had leading newspapers from times of enormous crisis, whether it was in the 1930s with the economic ruin and the rise of fascism throughout both Asia and Europe in those days, or the 1950s with you know the nuclear standoffs and McCarthyism and everything else, and the 1960s where I was a teenager and then in college with everything that was going to hell in the 1960s from assassinations to riots to the Vietnam War. And if you look to see what the leading elements of the press were putting into perspective, you feel more impressed by those who are saying, look, this is very serious. Again, the killing of Martin Luther King was one of these axes of history for the U.S. in 1968. And there are parts of the press that treated that with appropriate historic gravity and parts that did not. And I think anybody looking back on, it's quite a leap to 2022 and Joe Biden's granddaughter's wedding location photo shoot from the traumas of the 1960s, but to have the people who have the largest steering current effects on our public information, thinking about whether Vogue was early a day in or day not for a White House wedding is crazy and will look crazy in retrospect. So I think that that split consciousness should be part of their role now. How much has the collapse of local news hurt our politics? And is there any chance of fixing it? I'll ask James Fallows after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Let's go back to the collapse of local news, which is something we both think a lot about. But you were onto this very early, much earlier than me, and you stayed on it. 
You started your Our Towns project way back in 2013. You and your wife, Deb, got on a plane and you visited all these towns across the country that were underrepresented in media. And that led to a book in 2018 and to a really fantastic documentary by the same name on HBO. I watched it recently and I cannot recommend it enough. But on your list of crises for our political system, where do you rank the collapse of local news? I think it is a a very serious problem slash crisis, but I think one also that will be solved somehow. The reason I think it's a crisis and problem, again, is that the existing business model simply can't be retrieved. The internet has eliminated it. And the ripple effect, ramifications of that are profound in, they range from accountability for local government to some kind of source of trusted, less polarized news, et cetera. As local news outlets, including local TV, become, in TV's case, more and more owned by Sinclair and also um, radio and become more outlets for national level polarization that has all of its destructive effects on local news. The reason I think there will be some solution here is there is so much energy on so many fronts being devoted to figuring out what the new model will be and whether that is nonprofit news online startups. And even this fall, there's a group called the Lion News Organization Local Independent Online News Sites, which is innovative startups from all around the country. And they are big enough now they have national conventions. Almost every university has some kind of startup going with a local radio station or local papers, usually online papers, but not all. My wife, Deb, and I recently were in Muncie, Indiana, writing about some innovations they're doing in this regard, where the local Ball State newspaper has become essentially the local paper because the existing paper had been hollowed out in various ways. I think so many things are happening on so many fronts that no one thing will be the answer, but a lot of things might be. So I think there is momentum here that we can support. Yeah. But for me, at least, one of the many sort of national political consequences of this is exactly that, that it's the nationalization of politics, which is really the narrativization of politics. The nationalized politics is a very abstract (laughs) virtual politics in which people really are, you know, reduced to passive citizens or just spectators of the reality show. And, you know, as you might put it, or the ball game, whatever. And that is not democracy. That is entertainment. That is a TV show. That's not democracy. And that's not sustainable, I don't think. And for me, that's one of the absolute tragedies of this. I agree with that. And I'd like to circle one more time to sports and entertainment, which I think in a way that I I hope is relevant to what you just said. Yeah, please. There are a range of activities that require some kind of market base and market discipline, but fundamentally have more than market consequences on the world. For example, medical care. Medical care needs to have market discipline, but we know that healthcare can't be like the motorboat business or something else that is purely market-driven. Legal practice is the same. Lawyers make a lot of money. Law firms do, but there's some other function the justice system is serving. So with culture in various forms, so too with the universities and higher education, and so it is with the media, in my view. And a profound sort of category error over the last maybe 25 years or so is recognizing that the news business has always needed to be as entertaining and as interesting as it can be 
while still serving some other function. Because if its role is purely entertainment, then something else will always beat it. A real entertainment will beat it, and the Super Bowl will beat it, and any other thing you can think of which is attractive will beat it. And so having that balance with the press, as with education, as with the law, as with healthcare, as with religion, of making things as interesting as they can be without making them pure entertainment, that is the distinction that was lost when cable news began running Trump speeches wall-to-wall, because they were interesting. And the newspapers put him, you know, the top half of every news page. He was entertaining. And the distinction between entertaining and informative was one that I think our colleagues lost their way on, and traceably when they started running his speeches. Yeah, I mean, there's that famous quote, I guess, from Les Moonves, who was running CBS and Trump was running for president. You know, he said something to the effect of, you know, Trump may not be good for the country, but he's damn good for CBS. That was it, right? It was a hell of a TV show. It was a hell of a spectacle. And that was always the dirty little secret that the media, even the media that was committed to destroying Trump or criticizing Trump or undermining Trump, desperately needed him. And he was great for business. And there was that kind of perverse relationship that I think Trump exploited quite well. Exactly. And to circle back to the question you actually asked, which was it making people entertainment makes people passive members of the audience, except to the extent they are sports betting on games. Whereas civic life and journalism, it is destructive in the long run if it makes people only an audience. And local news and local consciousness has had the power that historically, and I think even now, of having people think, here is a place I could start. Here is something I could do. Here is something that would mean something to me. Something constructive. (laughs) was presented to you. I mean, I actually wonder, I wonder if the horizon of politics has now just become too big now that it's so nationalized. I mean, human beings evolved to live in these small communities, so did our brains. And this combination of a nationalized politics and the instantaneous delivery of information of all kinds, some good, some bad, some true, some false, about what's happening everywhere, all the time, is paralyzing and probably at best just repels people who would otherwise want to be active participants (laughs) in our democracy. Yes. And the way I will, as is my trademark, (laughs) look for a positive implication of that is that, as you know, from reading history and everything else you've written and talked about, and as again, I have lived through a lot of this, there have been waves within American history that have basically changed how people lived and where they lived and how they associated. One in my very early lifetime was the post-World War II sort of diaspora driven by freeways and sprawl and the rise of the Sun Belt. That was when my parents, who grew up in working-class Philadelphia, moved to Southern California, where my dad had been posted by the Navy and started their new life there. There was a great black migration of more than a century ago from the South to the industrializing cities of the Midwest, Chicago and Detroit, etc. And I I think we are living through probably another one of those right now, where a number of forces, the pandemic and its effects, the trauma of national politics in the last decade, possibilities, different work situations, people examining what they want to do with their lives. There may be some reconstitution of how people live locally, where they live, etc. You've written a little bit about Walter Lippmann, the the famous media theorist of the 
20th century. I've written a little bit about Walter Lippmann, who I think was wrong about quite a few things, but mostly right and unquestionably a brilliant thinker. And you know, he wrote a lot about the limitations of media in a country this large. He was fairly convinced that it was impossible to give people an objective picture of a reality or realities with which they don't have any direct contact. I mean, I wonder for you what it would even mean for a national press to present reality in its full perspective to an audience that is frankly inhabiting different <laughs> worlds or to an audience that is very disconnected from a lot of the stuff that they're trying to articulate. So if we start with two basic impossibilities or realities, one is the one, Sean, as you mentioned from Walter Lippmann in his book, Public Opinion, and afterwards, that it is impossible once we're talking about things beyond any of our firsthand experience, we're always looking through a filter or through a glass darkly or through shadows in the cave or whatever else. And so it's impossible really to have an accurate view and you try. The other is the post-Walter Lippmann, post-internet reality of things being even more fragmented than they have always been. They've always been somewhat fragmented, but they're even more so now when people are even busier and there's no way to intrude on people's times to say, as Walter Cronkite did when I was a kid, saying that's the way it is. And then here's a way you, a half hour view of the world that most of the public can share. Given those two just impossible obstacles. I think there are still things that the mainstream media can do that would be better. And there are illustrations of what those would be. If you took, again, the New York Times or the Washington Post and removed its national politics sections, you would see quite useful summaries of what's happening in the world of business or of technology or of global affairs or of the arts or whatever. And so you can lay it out there. And I think it's a problem that is localized to the significant issue of hyping, covering, and both-sizing national politics. And if you could learn from the rest of those papers' coverage, you could say there is some idea of how you could at least put things out and give people a menu to choose from. You know, you mentioned your lovely wife, Deb, and you and her had flew across the country a few years back working on the book, Our Towns, and the film, Our Towns. You immersed yourself in the life of all these towns. It's a big question, I know, but I'm curious, what was your biggest takeaway from that experience? How did it alter your perception of the country and the people who make it up? The biggest single surprise when Deb and I started doing this now almost 10 years ago, and spent most of four and a half years in our little single-engine propeller plane going from small town to small town, was how different the view of the country city by city and region by region seemed than the view you would get from national media. And the polling way to convey that is the longstanding view that people feel much better about the places where they live and the part of American life they directly experience yeah. than the hellscape they see nonstop on cable news and described in political speeches. And so it was the existence of civic fabric and people who didn't hate one another and didn't spend all their time arguing about national politics or the midterms or Hunter Biden's laptop. But in fact, we're thinking about life and community and the future. And so the existence even now of that part of the American fabric was the biggest revelation to us and the main message we are trying to convey. Yeah. I mean, that Gallup poll, the recent Gallup poll that showed 
85% of Americans were satisfied with their personal lives and their local community. And 85% also thought that the country was just completely in the shitter. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's at the risk of maybe oversimplifying this, but I mean, that is almost entirely the work of media. Is it not shaping that perception, engineering that perception? Yes, it is media and also the sort of bitter resentment-driven nationalization of politics, especially on the Republican side over the last generation. I would think Newt Gingrich is sort of the tribune of, of this. There have always been resentment-driven figures in our, our public life, Bilbo and John C. Calhoun and Joe McCarthy and George Wallace. But I think the modern era can be traced to Newt Gingrich. And so I think the portrayal by the national media of horrible things happening nationwide and the reality of national level politics becoming more resentment driven. Those two things, I think, are behind this really striking poll of most people still feeling as if where they live is okay and they can be involved in it, but the rest of the country is just going to hell. And there are national level problems, as we know, as you've written and, and talked about, but it's Trying to have Americans' view of their own country be more nuanced and appropriately complex and contradictory rather than just it's all hell beyond our town borders is part of the task of media. Is the political divide in America as deep and real as it seems? That's coming up after one last short break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
I lived in D.C. for years, and I now live in southern Mississippi, where I grew up. I know there are real cultural differences. I know there are real political differences, but I swear to God, I can't tell where the real differences end and the manufactured differences begin. I'm not even sure there's a real question here, but I guess I'm wondering if you think the divide in the country is as real and deep as it seems on TV and the internet. I think it occupies less of people's minds than you would think on TV, where you would think on TV that the only thing people are talking about in their daily lives and in the famed diners is how much they resent this or that political candidate. Of course, national politics uh, matters, and of course, voter turnout matters. But I, I think there are two events that the national press should have reflected on and has not unsurprisingly. One was, of course, the Kansas uh, abortion referendum a, a few months ago. The press usually portrays Kansas as a red state, even though it has a female Democratic governor, not newly reelected. And so the prediction was that a red state referendum on abortion would go a certain way, essentially in, in line with the Supreme Court Dobbs ruling. And the fact that Number one, what that showed is I'm not even talking about the merits of the vote, which was defending abortion rights within Kansas. It was the complexity of it that people might have nuanced views. And a state that would vote for Trump might also vote, you know, overwhelmingly in favor of maintaining uh, abortion rights within Kansas. The other was the supposed red wave that was going to come in the midterm elections during no November, which, as best I can tell, all the professional political analysts got entirely wrong, and it caused them no second thoughts at all, at least not that, that anyone can see, because the same people who even on the afternoon of the election were predicting huge Republican pickups everywhere are now explaining what's going to happen in the next presidential election. And yeah. <laughs> at least sports bookies have to pay off when, when they have a bad point spread. I don't think yeah. they ever have to pay off in our business. I mean, I think we've done a pretty decent job of explaining why obsessing over national news is bad and useless. But I wonder if now the problem is the demand for the national politics or the, or the politics of sport and theater that we get from the national press, if the demand for that now is just insatiable. It's more entertaining. You know, local politics can be kind of boring and clunky and <laughs> sclerotic and, and all these sorts of things. But boy, the uh, the first take sports center version of Porsche race <laughs> politics we get on TV every night. Boy, that's more fun, isn't it? I mean, at least for a lot of people, it's more compelling as theater because it's theater. And sometimes liberal democracy is actually not super entertaining, but super necessary. But do you think now that demand is sort of uncontrollable? There has been a self-reinforcing cycle, vicious cycle, or however you want to classify it, of it is genuinely interesting, the spectacle, and politicians know that spectacle attracts more audience and the audience wants more spectacle. So yes, I entirely agree. It's also the case that something that Deb and I mentioned both in our movie and, and our book is that most of the places we went to in our journey and most of the places that are in our, our movie are cities and states that voted for Trump in 2016 and voted Republican. Yeah. And Deb and I are not Trump supporters. I once worked in a Democratic administration back for Jimmy Carter as a speechwriter. And so we always made clear that people knew when we went to these places that if it came to a national political discussion, we would probably be on opposite sides. But it almost never came up. So, for example, we were just recently in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 
which is a fascinating city that has had a number of almost biblical-scale disasters in the last generation. They had this historic flood, I think, in 2008, where the river was like 30 feet above its normal level, and the entire town was underwater. They had about two or three years ago a so-called derecho, which was this kind of land-based hurricane that destroyed something like 700,000 trees, and it just was incredible to see. And we were in Cedar Rapids, and what was fascinating was what people were talking about there was the innovative ways they were having to have a tree planting program that would be equitable to the poorest parts of town and the way they were using landscaping, the levees in a Mississippi term (laughs) were being built up so they would protect against the next kind of flood and very extensive conversation on how to bring young people back to town and how to have an aerospace company decide to locate there. And we were there two weeks before the midterm elections And nobody volunteered to us what's going to happen with Chuck Grassley's Senate race or what's going to happen with with this or that, because these other things were interesting to them. So I think, yes, national politics has become sort of interesting and addictive, but also, if not prompted, people can find a lot of their own immediate lives interesting, too. That's a good point. You know, I think an obvious problem is a commercialized press is not only going to supply whatever the demand happens to be, it's going to use the tools at its disposal to incentivize the most profitable demands or stimulate the most profitable demands. And that is sort of the loop. I feel like we're kind of stuck in here. And I'll I'll tell you something I have tried in my role as... (laughs) as vizier of the American spectacle now, having seen so many chapters of it now, I know that I could spend all of my time seeing the latest aggravating thing that's on Twitter or on the latest most clicked feature of a news website. I'm trying to discipline myself to read physical books for a very set amount of time each day, just because it's better for me Books present things in a different scale than even the most outstanding tweet does. Seeing them physically, to me, I retain them in different fashions. So life is deeper and more interesting if I'm, so I'm trying to have less time looking at a screen and more looking at a page and seeing my friends. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, you know, like human beings just, we like conflict. We like to be entertained. <laughs> we like ice cream more than spinach. <laughs> Media is probably going to exploit that one way or the other. You know, you, wrote recently in one of your Substack posts that you've been writing about the media for a long time now, as we've already discussed. And you just say, this is what it's going to be. <laughs> like, it's not changing. The, you're convinced that the press won't or can't change. Why are you so convinced of that? Have you just been watching it for too long to believe any longer <laughs> that it can be otherwise? So I'm thinking about there are aspects of the press that are getting better, and there's a very important one that is not, and I think probably is uncorrectable. Now, the ones are getting better. Again, if you look at the breadth of coverage that's in our leading newspapers now, it's vastly more sophisticated and broader ranging and all the rest than when I was a kid. You could read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the LA Times. You could spend all day doing that. And if you didn't read the politics stuff, you would come out better informed about the world. That's gotten better. I think that also the proliferation of outlets and voices in the, the media 
also opened up possibilities that weren't there before. What is worse and I think uncorrectable is political coverage. And the reason I say uncorrectable is that in previous times, there have been big mishaps or errors, and the press said, wait a minute, we have to do something. For the New York Times, two examples are the Jason Blair plagiarism episode of whenever that was 20 years ago or so. In retrospect, relatively small potatoes. It was one person who was inventing stories, inventing datelines. It was terrible for the integrity of the press that one person was doing that. But the Times had a giant self-examination about that and got rid of uh, much of its leadership, etc. Another example would be after the 9-11 attacks, the New York Times made very serious errors in promoting the Iraq WMD stories. And it had a kind of reckoning after that when Bill Keller, who was then the executive editor, had sort of an an after-action account. And I believe it was either that or Jason Blair, which led to the creation of the public editor's role, the New York Times, started by Dan Elkrant, who did a very good job, and some other good ones, including notably Margaret Sullivan. There have been a number of warning signs on political coverage. The most notable would have been the obsession with Hillary Clinton's emails in 2016, which not only was there no reckoning with that, but Dean Baquet, the Times' editor in those days, sort of ridiculed and poo-pooed any uh, criticism of it and just said he has no regrets. If you had the sequence of the emails and the recent political red wave coverage and the reluctance to call out Trump on a number of lies, you would think if there were going to be a corrective opportunity, it would already have come. If pointing out the errors and patterns were going to change behavior, that would have happened. And you wouldn't have to do the millionth podcast about both sidesism. I wouldn't have to write the zillionth article about it. It would have been fixed by now. And I think it's not going to be fixed. And well, here we go again. Trump (laughs) is apparently going to run for president again. I've often said to myself and others that I don't know that I would stay in this business if I had to go through another four years or whatever of thinking and talking and writing about that person. (laughs) On the one hand, part of me thinks Trump actually is just not as interesting television as he was back in 2015 and 2016. Frankly, the TV show is less entertaining than it was back then, but also, as his recent speech suggested, I mean, he's still going to capture coverage. The press still benefits from the hysteria and outrage that he provokes. Do you think, are we going to make the same mistakes again this time around, or do you think that the press may do better on the second run? I hope that the press will do better the second round with Trump, and I sort of think that too, for the same reasons you're saying. I'm careful to note and quick to note here that the worst prediction I have ever made, I avoid making predictions in general. There's one prediction I made in 2015, about the time Trump came down the golden elevator to announce, I did a post on the Atlantic site saying, give me a break, no serious party will ever nominate a person like this. And I was very clear in saying, don't treat this person as serious. You can argue about whether or not (laughs) a serious party was the one that embraced him. But I am careful to say to avoid any kind of prediction about Trump. That's the only thing I've said. But I think just observationally, he seems a deflated figure now. Before he started running for president, he seemed a kind of clownish fringe figure. And I think he may be going back 
to that again. And the Republicans saying, this is not good for us in practical terms. And his audience saying, yeah, we've seen this show before. We don't need to see season 12 of Trump. So I hope that his deflatedness will make it easier for the media to do the right thing. It may be our only hope. We shall see. So if you're right, and you probably are, that we can't fix the media model we have, then we're going to have to build something new. And you talk about we're going to need new public information systems that actually map on to the political, economic, and technological realities today. How are we going to get that done? Jim, can you lead the way here? (laughs) For people who have used Twitter, which includes most people in the journalism world and a a number of others, there's, in a way, a precursor or parallel of what's happening because Twitter seems as if it's going to be very different a month from now, a year from now than it's been over the past decade or so. And people who have used it for some kind of community for all of its defects are going to need to construct other communities. And people don't know whether that's going to be on Mastodon or Substack or something else that doesn't exist. But that process of something that's known being taken away and something not now known having to be reconstituted, I think that is a process happening in online discourse. Something similar is the case with local news, I believe. We know what has gone away, mainly the local newspapers, a few brave exceptions, but not many. We don't know what's going to be the constellation or configuration of what takes its place. And the combination of local nonprofit radio and nonprofit news sites and Report for America and alliances among them. So five years from now, I think if you and I are talking about this, we'll be able to say, oh, yes, it was clear that this model from the Texas Tribune or this model from Ball State and Muncie or this model from local NPR in California, that they were the way. I think some model will emerge and we're in the kitchen right now trying to put all the ingredients together. So uh, to be continued. I co-wrote a book that came out earlier this year called The Paradox of Democracy. And one of the things we we argued there is that the press clause of the First Amendment actually affirms the right of access to newspapers, ideally print newspapers. And that's something that could be subsidized federally. Do you see any chance of that? Yes. And as you know, Steve Waldman and others have been part of a very brave effort to have both tax incentives and grants and all the rest to try to treat local news as part of infrastructure and part of a public good and not government-owned press. There's not going to be any counterpart to the BBC or Canadian or Australian broadcasting, but there are ways in which the appropriate role of the press as infrastructure can be recognized in our tax and spending code. So yes, I am all in on the proposals you've been making. James Fallows, what a pleasure. I think you really are one of the best of us, and it's a great pleasure to speak with you. And I recommend that people read your books, go watch that documentary film, Our Towns, and check out James's Substack. It's great. Thanks so much for doing this. Sean, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me the time. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drozduska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As I said at the beginning of this thing, you know, I talk a lot about the press. I'm constantly 
criticizing the way we do our work. I've written a ton about this. We've talked about it a good bit on this show. Not a lot of people who talk about the collapse of local news have any real sense of what to do about it. What I like about James in particular is he really does have an eye towards how to make things better. He is thinking about how to fix it. Let us know what you think. As always, drop us a line at the gray area at box.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, throw it in a group chat. Your parents probably already love James Fallow, so send it their way as well. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.